Well, good morning, everybody, and a particular welcome to those of you who are new to us. It's lovely to see some new faces with us this morning, and I do hope you'll feel very at home here with us. Uh, For those of you who are new, can I draw your attention to the back of the white bulletin, uh, where you'll see the various activities that take place in the church during the week. Um, Obviously, we meet here on Sundays at 9.30, but we do have midweek home groups, where we look at the passage that we study in church here on Sunday morning and have a chance to ask more questions about it. And then on Friday nights, we're running Christianity Explored at the moment here in the church building at 6 o'clock. If you do want to know more about the basics of the Christian faith, that really is a terrific course and I commend it warmly to you. Well, do please keep your Bible open at the passage that Sarah read so beautifully for us, page 741, and at the same time, please also have the white bulletin open in front of you, where you'll find there's an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. Uh, And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this tremendous privilege of an open Bible. And we pray, Lord, this morning that as we come to you with many hurts and struggles and sicknesses and uh, uncertainties, we pray that you would touch our lives in the same way that you touched the life of the blind beggar. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me introduce you to Francis. Uh, Francis comes from the Upper Nile region in South Sudan. Uh, He has 13 brothers and sisters, but Francis is the only one left alive. Uh, As a young man, he enlisted in the People's Liberation Army and he was sent to fight against the Islamic army from the north. He did that for 13 years and was widely recognised for his fearless courage on the field of battle. But one hot afternoon, Francis was shot twice in the stomach. Uh, In the confusion, I suppose this happens all the time, he, he got separated from his unit and for three days he was left alone on the battlefield, surrounded by corpses. Hyenas and vultures were hopping around his body, and as he grew weaker, he honestly wasn't sure whether he was alive or dead. On the third day, he had just about enough strength to reach out his hand for his AK-47 rifle in order to take his own life. But as he did that, for no obvious reason he suddenly remembered the name Jesus from his childhood. Truthfully, he hadn't given Jesus a second thought since then. But in that moment of absolute hopelessness, he called out, Jesus, save me. Just that, no more. Only a few minutes later, his comrades returned to the battlefield and they found him. He was barely alive, They carried him to the nearest field hospital where he was treated and uh, he eventually made a full recovery. 
Francis was so overcome with thankfulness to Jesus that he vowed to serve him for the rest of his life. And uh, shortly afterwards, he enrolled at Scott Theological Seminary in Kenya. And in 2007, he graduated and returned to South Sudan, where he has been training pastors and serving as a missionary ever since. Now, I begin with that because Francis is actually a wonderful example of the story we're looking at together this morning. It's actually the last miracle recorded in Luke's Gospel. And it occurs as Jesus has almost completed his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, It's a journey that began in Galilee all the way back in chapter 9. And for the last ten chapters, Luke has been recording that journey in tremendous detail. Huge crowds have been following Jesus because the things that Jesus has been saying and doing are utterly unique. The crowds have never seen anything like it, and they can't get enough of it. But over and over again, Jesus warns them that when they eventually get to Jerusalem, everything will change, because Jesus will be killed, and three days later, rise to life. Uh, And we have the last of those warnings at the start of our passage this morning. But Jesus, you see, has also been saying that what will look like disaster and failure when they get to Jerusalem will actually be the start of God doing something radically different and wonderful. It will actually be the start of God making all things new. The start of God bringing in a perfect new world. It's actually a world that's going to be very similar to the world that we live in at the moment, but with some significant differences. For a start, there will be no hospitals, because no one will ever get sick. There will be no funerals, because no one will ever die. And there will be no prisons, because, of course, there will be no crime. And the crucial point is that the people who will be part of that world then are the people who respond to Jesus now. That's what this journey to Jerusalem is all about. It's all about responding to Jesus. And here, as this journey is almost over, Luke records this wonderful miracle. And it's all about what Jesus did for somebody who responded to him in the right way. Now, for those of you who are new to us, I think I need to tell you that the miracles of Jesus are never simply displays of divine power. Rather, they are parables in real life. In other words, these miracles actually happened. Yes, Jesus really did these wonderful things for real people. But like the parables, the miracles are also teaching us permanent truths that speak to you and me today. And in this particular miracle... 
The clue to the meaning is in verse 42. Can we all see verse 42 in our Bibles? In verse 42, Jesus says to the blind beggar, Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Now, in the original language, the word for healed is exactly the same as the word for saved. So Jesus is saying to this man that because of his faith, he's not only been healed physically, which of course would be marvellous enough, but he's also been saved spiritually. In other words, Jesus gives him a place in this marvellous new world that I've just been talking about. So you see, in this miracle, Jesus is giving us a picture. It's actually a visual aid that helps us understand what happens in a real Christian conversion. And there are four permanent truths about Christian conversion in this story, which I'm absolutely certain will speak to someone in this church this morning. First, we notice that the blind beggar was given a wonderful opportunity. We don't know, of course, how long the blind beggar had been by the roadside near Jericho, but one day he heard the commotion of a crowd going by and he asked what was happening. Verse 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, as it turned out, Jesus was never going to return to Jericho. In verse 31, at the beginning of the passage, we're told that Jesus and the disciples were going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus says quite plainly in words of one syllable that from Jerusalem there would be no return. So, although the blind man didn't actually know it at the time, when Jesus passed by, he was being given an opportunity that was never going to occur again. And he grasped it with both hands. Now, I have to say that I am concerned that there might be a misunderstanding in some people's minds about this. You see, on the one hand, the Gospels do show us that God is willing to receive anybody into his kingdom, whoever they are, however unimportant they may be, if they will only come. Indeed, a little earlier in the chapter, uh, Jesus told the marvellous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and I'm sure you know that in those days, Pharisees were important religious figures in the community, while the tax collectors were, of course, despised as crooks and charlatans. And yet Jesus says that the one who found favour with God was the tax collector, even though he thought he had no chance at all. And now in our passage this morning, there's this blind beggar. He's somebody of absolutely no importance on the social scene. He's got no money, he's got no influence in society whatsoever. The crowds say it's an absolute waste of his time to cry out to Jesus. But Jesus is willing 
to receive him. So one of the great truths of this chapter, and indeed of all the Gospels, is that our God is merciful and gracious. He's willing to receive the most unimportant people, anybody, as long as they will come to him. However, however, every great truth in the Bible can be misused and misunderstood by twisting it in a wrong direction. And one of the ways that this might be misunderstood is to assume that God is always waiting to receive us and always willing to be merciful. That he's certain to forgive us whenever we choose to turn to him. But my dear friends, that is not necessarily true. One of the loveliest prayers, I think, in the prayer book is the one that begins, we do not presume to come to this your table. It's a prayer that's based on the mercy of God. But that can be horribly misunderstood if we presume that we can come to God whenever we feel like it, believing that he will be merciful to us no matter how we have behaved towards him. Uh, For some years I worked in the financial services industry in London and uh, one of the things that I noticed there was that the the very senior men, uh, the men who'd climbed to the top of the heap, they could step out of their office uh, onto the pavement and simply raise their hand and out of nowhere uh, a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce or whatever it was would appear to take them to the station or to their next meeting. And I suppose here in South Africa that uh, politicians and sports stars have the same privilege. Now, there are lots of people who think of God like that. But friends, God is not a heavenly chauffeur. He is not waiting patiently for some proud person to decide that they might just condescend to become a Christian after all. That they might have this idea that they can raise their hand whenever they feel like it and that God will rush to their rescue, grant them forgiveness and welcome them into the kingdom. But that picture of God is not true. There's a very good example of this, actually, if you'll turn to it with me, in the letter to the Hebrews. It's on page 857 in the Church Bible. Page 857, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Uh, It is in, I think, the left-hand column at the bottom of the page. Page 857, Hebrews 12. Now what's happening here is that Hebrews is holding up Esau as an example for us to avoid. Now you know the story because we've studied it before and you'll remember that Esau was so impulsive that he had absolutely no problem whatsoever in giving up his place in God's plan in exchange for a good meal. Now look how Hebrews puts it in verse 16. Can you see verse 16? See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. 
Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind. That means he couldn't repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, although that is, I think, a rather hard word for us to hear from God, can I please underline it in your conscience this morning? Esau could not repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He raised his hand, and God did not come. He wanted to repent, and God wasn't listening. He asked for a blessing, but he couldn't get it. Because, you see, Esau had treated God as though God was at his disposal, as if God was there for his convenience. But friends, God is not there for our convenience. I enjoy reading biographies. If you want to know what to give me for Christmas, give me a biography. And one of the people I love to read about is Winston Churchill. From his uh, teenage years, Churchill seems to have had a very strong sense of divine destiny, uh, that God was raising him up for a really important leadership role that would affect the whole world. But, um, and today it's true that historians agree that more than anybody else, Winston Churchill was responsible for rescuing the world from the tyranny of Hitler's Germany in World War II. Now, towards the end of his life, Winston Churchill had a private meeting with Billy Graham. Uh, It was a time when God was using Billy Graham to win thousands of souls for Christ right the way round the world. Billy spoke quite frankly to Winston Churchill about his need for a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Churchill listened patiently, but when Billy Graham had finished, all the great man could say was this, I'm too old. Not long afterwards, Winston Churchill died. Now think about that. Think about it. Take it seriously. For many, many years, Winston Churchill had been aware of God's hand on his life. He knew that God had done great things through him. But when faced with the opportunity to get right with God, to have his sins forgiven, and to receive eternal life, he couldn't do it. Now maybe you know someone like that. Someone who knows that God has indeed drawn near to them, but they've never been able to take that vital step of turning to Christ and putting their lives in his hand. And the point is, you see, that it is possible to turn away from Almighty God too often. Now our purpose here in this church is to present the gospel week by week in such a way that Jesus really is passing by. And it's not a matter of human words or clever speech. It's a matter of God's grace in which Jesus gives opportunities to everyone who comes. So friends, don't waste these opportunities. 
Don't let them simply pass you by. Should you walk out of this church today without grasping the opportunity that God in his mercy is offering to you, you may never have that opportunity again. In which case, please don't say you weren't warned. Well, come back to Luke, because the second permanent truth that emerges from this miracle concerns spiritual determination. Look at verse 39. (coughs) Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I can't help admiring this man, can you? The important people uh, made sure that they had grabbed the best places, uh, the places closest to Jesus in the crowd. And uh, when the blind beggar called out to Jesus, they told him to shut up. As far as they were concerned, he was totally insignificant. But this man wouldn't be put off. Uh, In my very first job, uh, which was on the floor of the London Stock Exchange, um, I was what they used to call a blue button. And uh, in the days before digital technology, a blue button's job was to rush around the floor of the London Stock Exchange, checking the share prices of various companies, and then rushing back to the senior dealer's office. And uh, in those days, the senior dealer's office was actually a tiny room not much bigger than a cupboard, absolutely windowless. And uh, because it was so small, uh, the blue buttons weren't allowed to sit down and we weren't allowed to speak unless we were spoken to. Uh, Indeed, if we were foolish enough to open our mouths, we were immediately told to be quiet. So we felt very insignificant indeed. Now, of course, that sort of thing is terribly humbling, isn't it? Because deep down in our hearts, there is a real desire for the approval of others. We all want to be liked. Uh, the, the, The entire social media industry is founded on that essential truth. And in itself, it's not actually a wrong thing. But it is important to understand that if you are aware of this deep desire in yourself for recognition, and that is not balanced by a greater desire for the things of God, well then, my friend, you will not become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you will not survive as one, because, you see, you've got to want God and the ways of Christ more than the crowd's approval if you're going to survive as a Christian. Because, you see, while the crowd might be willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ on one or maybe two days a year, usually Easter and Christmas, uh, by and large, the crowd is not favourably disposed to real Christianity. There's a marvellous example of this, actually, in Luke 13 on page 736, and you might like to look it up. Luke 13, uh, verse 22, page 736. Verse 22. 
Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, as usual, our Lord really doesn't bother to answer that kind of question. Uh, Jesus knows what they actually need to hear. And so Jesus said to them, verse 24, notice this, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, please don't ask me that kind of question. Just make every effort to enter the kingdom yourself. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and, notice this, will not be able to. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we we ate and drank with you. In other words, we took the Lord's Supper regularly. Uh, You taught in our streets. Yes, we we had a marvellous pastor in our church and he taught the Bible faithfully every week. Verse 27. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Now friends, I didn't say that. Jesus did. In some ways, I rather wish I could rub that out of the New Testament, but I can't. And what it means, you see, is that if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want a fresh start with God and a place in that marvellous new world that I described at the beginning of this talk, you've got to be determined about it. It's no good having deep theological conversations with the crowd asking whether a few will be saved or not. What about you, Jesus says? Make every effort to enter in. Like the blind beggar in our story, you've got to shout, Lord, have mercy on me. And when your friends tell you to shut up and sit down, say it again. Lord, have mercy on me. Well, come back to Luke 18. Because the third thing to notice from the blind man's experience is that he was saved in a moment of crisis. Look at verse 40. Jesus stopped. That's a marvellous statement, isn't it? I mean, just imagine that. I should think his heart probably stopped as well, don't you? Um... Notice that Jesus totally ignores what the important people have been saying to the beggar. They've been saying, shut up, Jesus can't be bothered with you. And at that very moment, that very moment, Jesus stops. And he says to the VIPs, go and get him. So the man's brought to Jesus. And in verse 41, Jesus asks him the all-important question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I've been wondering this week why it is that Jesus asked the question that way. Uh, The commentators offer a number of different possible explanations. Uh, For example, uh, does Jesus want to know if the man really believes that he can give him his sight? Well, that is one possible explanation. 
But maybe it's even simpler than that. Remember, will you, that this man was a beggar. For weeks and quite possibly months and years, he'd been sitting by the side of the road, holding out his hand, asking the passers-by for money and food, because he wanted to have his physical needs met. And then suddenly Jesus comes along and asks, what do you want from me? In other words, is money and food all that you want, or do you want something better? And I put it like that, and I think this probably is what, uh, why Jesus asked the question like this, because only a few days before, somebody in the crowd had said to Jesus, Teacher, get my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, now we can imagine the, the situation, can't we? Presumably, uh, somebody in the family had died, and uh, this man had just come from the solicitor's office, Presumably the the will had been read out and uh, there'd been one of those terrible family rows about who gets what. And so this man was saying to Jesus, uh, Lord, please, please come and help because um, mother wants the farm and uh, somebody else wants granny's clock. Um, Please come and help us, sort this mess out. And Jesus refused. Because, you see, Jesus is not going to answer our prayers over that kind of thing. He's actually not interested in who gets Granny's clock. Because a million years from now, it won't actually matter one tiny bit. So Jesus here says to this man, tell me, what do you want from me? And the beggar says, Lord, I want to see. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, when we look very carefully at the first part of the story, it's immediately obvious. Because Jesus has been telling his disciples for the umpteenth time that he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. That he's going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spat upon, and killed. I don't know how many times it is that Jesus has spelled this out for the disciples in words of one syllable. Now, what did the disciples think about it? Just look at verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. Three times in one sentence, one verse, Luke says the disciples simply didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And immediately afterwards, we have this marvellous miracle of the blind beggar. And it's as though Jesus is saying, you see, that though men are profoundly ignorant about the things of God, I can open their eyes. Now that is what this story is all about. It's saying that Jesus is able to open your eyes. That's actually what salvation is all about. A converted Christian, uh, a real born-again Christian, a living Christian, is someone whose eyes have been opened. Now let me ask you, Has that happened to you? 
The way to actually test uh, whether your eyes have been opened is actually to ask yourself another question. Can I explain this to other people? Can you explain why Jesus died on the cross? Can you explain to people why um, you know for sure that though you are very sinful, you also know you're going to heaven? Can you explain the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to your next door neighbour? Are you able to tell your children plainly so that they can understand what it actually means to be a Christian? My friend, if you can't do those things, then you would be right to ask whether you are a truly saved Christian. Because the mark of someone whose eyes have been opened is that they can see clearly enough in order to be able to guide somebody else. I mean, if I'm blind, um, I might just about be able to sort of feel my way around this building by myself. But I certainly wouldn't want to show somebody else how to get from A to B, how to get from here, for example, down to the notice boards in the big church, because there's two sets of double doors and two sets of stairs. It would be a disaster, wouldn't it? The tourist season has already started, hasn't it? comes earlier every year, I think. Imagine there you are, you're out on the main road, and uh, a tourist stops you and says, excuse me, can you please tell me the way to the waterfront? Now they're uh, in their car facing towards Cape Point. Now what on earth do you say at that point? I mean, you live here, but can you tell that tourist simply and clearly that they've got to turn round and which roads to take in order to eventually wind up at the waterfront. You see, it's a real test, that, isn't it, of whether you know. Now, I hope by now you know whether you're a real Christian or not. If you're not, why don't you say to Jesus today, Lord, I want to see. Why don't you pray that prayer? doesn't matter what anybody else says. You see, every single time the gospel is faithfully preached, Jesus is passing by. And if Jesus has stopped at your seat this morning and he's saying, what do you want me to do for you? My friend, that's a crisis. Why don't you say, Lord, I want to see And if you do, you will find that you are a new person and that you suddenly start seeing things you've never seen before. So with that in mind, I think it's appropriate that fourthly, this miracle also tells us something, quite simply and I think very beautifully, about the consequences of Christian conversion. This is what happens to you if you are truly converted. Let me tell you one thing that will certainly happen. It's in verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. 
You see, when God acts in our lives, we become followers of Jesus Christ and we worship him. And other people can see it. You see, there is a certain, if I can put it this way, unavoidable publicity in becoming a Christian. Uh, Don't misunderstand that. Uh, Jesus isn't asking us to become like the Pharisees, you know, kind of showing off our faith to everybody else. Not that. And yet, when you read this story, we can't miss the impact that this man's faith had on other people. So if we ask the question, you know, okay, can I keep my Christian faith to myself? The answer is, no, I most certainly cannot. For a start, I need to be part of a church. There's no way around that, uh, because, you know, once you start to follow Christ, you have automatically become a member of his family. And now you need them, and they need you. And of course, your your biological family will know. Your friends will find out soon enough because of course your Sundays will be different. And the world will know. Um, The Bible says quite clearly that if we believe in our hearts, we've got to confess with our lips. That's what a real Christian is. So the people that you spend your life with will soon discover that you're not the same person that you were before. And these consequences cannot be hidden. Elsewhere, Jesus says that the light has got to be put on a hill. In other words, the church has got to shine in the world. In the end, we can't hide our faith. We can't pretend that we don't know about Christ. We've got to get up and actually open our mouths. We've got to say that Jesus means everything to us and that we believe he is the only hope for our messed up world. We've got to say these things, you see, or we're being faithless. Isn't it marvellous that this man didn't waste a moment? As soon as he received his sight, he followed Jesus, praising God totally unashamed to stand up and be counted. And remember, will you, that this was a dangerous time to walk through Jericho in the name of Christ, and even more dangerous to follow him all the way up to Jerusalem. Well, it's a simple story, but it's rather more profound and challenging than we all thought, isn't it? Because Jesus is telling us something about spiritual opportunities. They fade away all too quickly. Don't lose it. He's telling us about spiritual determination that won't be put off, won't be crushed, won't be sat on. And if Christ stops and he speaks to you today, my friend, that is a spiritual crisis for you. Use it. Cry out to him. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. Make absolutely sure that before you leave this building today, you have said, Lord, have mercy on me. Please, open my eyes. Remake my life. Let's pray.
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. We know that these words are true, Lord. They humble us. They make us realise that this is not just another Sunday, but for some it's a day of crisis. In your sovereign mercy, please call some from death and darkness into light and life. Open their eyes, open their hearts. Put them on the road that leads to heaven. Give them a great desire to call upon you, to ask you for mercy, and to ask you to open their eyes. Thank you, Lord. Amen.